Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today, we're joined by Will Page. He is the former chief economist at Spotify. And in this episode, he spoke to Linda Yu about his new book, Tarzan Economics Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. It's a really fascinating conversation which explores how the music industry had to overcome the existential crisis of online piracy and innovate to build the new world of online streaming. It's a really fascinating conversation with a lot of lessons and tips on how we can innovate and thrive in periods of disruption. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Will's book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. The vision that Daniel Ek had was that fighting this war against piracy through litigation was making it worse. We're all staring at our naps at the moment. The same tide of digital disruption that music experience is now rising around everybody's feet, be it individuals, organizations, and political institutions. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I'm joined by Will Page, a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and former chief economist at Spotify. We're here to talk about his new book, Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. At Spotify from 2012 to 2019, he explored the anatomy of a hit, he helped redefine catalog and articulate the global value of music copyright. So very warm welcome to you, Will. Firstly, tell me why you wrote this book and also just a bit about your personal journey into the music industry, where you say there was no demand for economists. I'm absolutely shocked. You started off as a civil servant by day and a DJ journalist at night in Edinburgh. So tell me that story. Well, that was like a Batman lifestyle of wearing a sort of customary charcoal black suit, blue shirt, red tie, working for sort of treasury style government economic function by day and then writing for Giles Peterson's publication, Straight No Chase from the Evening. And I had these two passions, music and economics. And what baffled me was, especially around this time, and we're talking here about 2002 through to 2006, there was, the music industry was falling off a cliff with piracy and there was no economist to work out a solution. So it was thousands of lawyers, hundreds of thousands of lawyers even, all busy suing the consumer for file sharing, suing websites, suing internet service providers, taking a litigation route to solving this problem of rampant piracy, of rampant theft of intellectual property, but not one economist thinking differently. And I wanted to be the first. And if I jumped to the very last line of the book, I, I, the advice I offer the reader is to not to wait for their job description, but to create one. And that's essentially what I did, which was to write the job description for an economist and move to London, start work with the PRS for music, which is songwriters and publishers in the UK, and start to work on a solution to this problem. And, you know, back to where this book takes us, it's a problem that everyone else is staring at now. That's what really gets me is, you know, we're all staring at our naps at the moment. The same tide of digital disruption that music experience at the turn of the millennium is now rising around everybody's feet, be it individuals, organizations, and political institutions. The title of your book, again, is Tarzan Economics. You quote a technologist who described swinging from the old to the new vine and he said, we cling to this vine that keeps us off the jungle floor. Yet at the same time, we swing for the next vine because we want to be propelled forward. The trick is figuring out when, when to let go of that old vine and when to embrace that new vine. So tell me about choosing this as your title. 
So I credit Jim Griffin, uh, a technologist, for that term. And I actually heard him say it to me in a bar in southern Norway back in 2006. And due to the extortionate bar prices in Norway, I stayed sober enough that night to remember it the next day. So thank you for the purchasing power parity of the Norwegian krona there, I guess. Um, but yeah, thanks to that term, it was just a great way of thinking through how people react to disruption. You know, for the first 10 years of music's 20-year journey through disruption, we really made a dog's dinner of it. We, we fought change. We held on to the old model. We believed people would be buying CDs in plastic cases or iTunes downloads, which essentially replicated the CD model. Where all the consumer was telling us is they wanted to go to the internet and access music for free or at least make it feel like it's free. That's what Napster was, and that's what Spotify is. Enter this new vine, this new model of Spotify, and it took a lot of confidence to let go of a business which was at its very peak worth $25 billion and grab onto this new vine and hope that it could replace that $25 billion. But what you're essentially saying to the consumer is, you don't need to change, I do. You're still gonna enter this platform called Spotify. You're still gonna access all of these songs. You're still going to feel like they're free because you pay a monthly recurring fee backstage. That's not that dissimilar to what Napster was telling us back in 2000. So for a two-year, the two-decade journey through disruption, we made a mess of the first 10 years. We solved it in the second 10 years. Again, the purpose of the book is to hopefully reduce the time spent suffering and increase the time spent recovering as we all start staring at our Napster moment today. So on that, you start the book with a provocative chapter titled, We All Have a Napster Moment Ahead, just what you were saying. Can you see yours? So tell me what a Napster moment is um, and remind us about Napster itself. Yeah, so this is where you age yourself. And when millennials today say, what was Napster, mommy, daddy? It's, okay, we're getting on a little bit. But 20 years ago, uh, an illegal file sharing site was launched on the American internet. And for Europeans listening to this call, you probably relate to the platform Winamp, a very similar application, which essentially allowed you to trade files free across the internet. So you could go to Napster and providing your dial-up speed was fast enough, download every song the Beatles had ever made in one simple click. What's not to like, given a CD cost $14.99 at the time? So that essentially challenged the concept of copyright. Let's think about the words here, Linda. Copyright stands for the right to control copying. It's actually in the word copyright. What happens to copyright when you lose that right or you lose that ability to control copying is what we spent 10 years staring to the abyss asking ourselves. I think pivoting from a transactional model to an access model to giving the consumer what they always wanted all along is a great example of reaching out to a new vine and finding a recovery that carries on growing at pace today. So it's, you know, that Napster moment was actually attacking the word copyright. We lost the right to control copying. So instead we controlled access. Now, where else can you apply that? I'll give you one that's very close to home. If you look at journalism, for example, very similar paradox facing journalists just now in terms of what's happening to the newspaper circulation. Well, let's even go back to the word. We discussed copyright. What's happening to the word newspaper? Who wants to hold a piece of paper in their hands? We touch a piece of glass instead. Perhaps we change the language too. So you start looking at newspapers. You can look at legal professions, bankers, accountancy. All of these professions are being attacked by digital disruption. This book's there to help them. Absolutely. Um, fascinating. A lot of, I want to get into the music story because there are so many lessons I think we can pick up, but it was 
just as you were mentioning there a moment ago, disruption, it was just really interesting to discover, um, you write about it in your book, that the three professions students used to head towards to earn the biggest salaries has changed. It used to be accountancy, banking, and law. Now it's data science, software engineering, and product management. So just sort of outline your thoughts on what this says and will it last? It's baffling as I think about when I was at university, revealing my age, but, you know, completing my degree at the turn of the millennium, thinking that was it. You know, if you wanted to earn the top dollar, if you wanted the prestige, get a job in an investment bank, go work for one of the big four or big five accountancy firms um, or become a lawyer. Now, that was the, the options on the table. Now, I don't think the brightest and the best students are thinking about those three options at all. They're thinking of product management roles at Google, where the salaries and the stock options are far more attractive. That's got big, big questions about higher education. We can come to that later if you wish, but it really raises questions about, you know, where are we going in the future? What does that new vine look like? Maybe I just take the legal profession just very quickly. If you look at what technology is doing to the legal profession, we're now beginning to see law without lawyers, something that Richard Susskind's written about for many years. Fascinating topic. I know tech companies in Silicon Valley, which are signing AI contracts this month. I mean, it is happening. So what does that mean for somebody studying law today when they're thinking about what type of legal profession will I be entering in two or three years' time? Essentially, next year's curriculum is already out of date. I think that's a real challenge facing higher education. I want to get to the eight principles that you outlined to help us pivot through this uh, change, this disruption. But first, there's so many great stories about the music industry in this book. And I want to um, ask you about um, the examples from some of the heyday, the music industry that exemplify the phrase, quote, so bent, it's straight. <laughs> so tell me about how albums were really awarded gold and platinum status. Yeah, well, I credit that expression with my aunt Doreen Loder, who I think joined the music industry in the 50s. She was brought up in New Malden in South London and went to work for Decca Records. It was the only place that a girl of her age could get a job at it at that time and worked her way through the ranks, ran Enzyme Records with Nigel Grange, responsible for Sinead O'Connor, the Waterboys, Bob Geldof, arts acts like then. I always remember her telling me this business is so Bennett straight. So I thought for the book, I would revisit that term that hilarious expression, apply it. And the example that you toss up there is, it's called certification. Like you'll often hear, this album went gold, this album went platinum, this album went treble platinum. Now the point there is, somebody set a rule to designate when an album qualifies for an award like gold or platinum. And what the record label executives had back then, back when the record labels were printing money, when the executives were taking helicopters to their private jets, was they would ship a gold or a platinum level of a record because shipments is what qualified towards certification. It wasn't actually sales. So as long as you shipped a million copies of that record, you would qualify for platinum and you would get your bonus. If half a million came back to the factory gate, well, that was neither here or there because that's for the CFO to deal with the cost of returns. You know, retailers had sale and return models back then. Of course, we have no breakage like that in a digital model today, but it's just interesting how... Once you invent a rule to which the game is played by, people always try to bend those rules. So I say, here's a nice, innocent rule. Sell a million records, you're platinum. And if the bonuses are linked to reaching platinum and platinum is based on shipments, not sales, what does everybody do? Ship a million records. So (laughs) that's when I learned the expression, ship platinum, receive gold, which is you sent a million out, 
you got your bonus, you got your certification, then a half a million came back to the factory gate, a huge cost of the business. Now, that's just music industry skullduggery from the, the heyday of the cocaine era of the 1990s, but you can still see it today in terms of how directors' contracts can often be designed with short-term incentives, which cause long-term pain. And we've seen some quite high-profile examples of that in the news recently. So it's interesting to think about how the music industry was so bent it was straight and then apply those examples to the wider world that we see around us. Mm, I'm going to have to revisit all my views of best-selling albums now, now that I know that. Um, so before we get to uh, Spotify, just one more, um, just that yeah. fascinating factoid that you, uh, that you mentioned. So after streaming took off, so around 2013 to 2018, you wrote that the average song length on the Billboard Hot 100 fell from 3 minutes 50 seconds to 3 minutes 30 seconds. So just tell me about how songs have gotten shorter and the chorus getting moved to the front. So this is something which, when people will be reading this, will get a little bit unnerved about, like, what is technology doing to art? And we'll go into that in a, bit, in a, in a, in a quick second. But, you know, I want to stress from the outset, we've been here before, and we'll learn about that shortly too. But if you think about how the streaming model works, you only get paid if your song's been played on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon for 30 seconds. So providing I've listened to you for more than 30 seconds, it clicks the ticker. Boom, we're now earning a royalty. But you don't get paid a penny more for lasting a second longer. So what does that mean that Kenny songwriters should do? They should write song- shorter songs and put the chorus towards the front, which is what we're seeing happening today. The average song length is falling below three minutes. It used to be above four minutes. And the vast majority of hit songs today begin with the chorus to hook you in at an earlier stage. There's no verse, bridge, chorus, climax. It's straight in for the chorus at the very beginning. I saw this happen in Sweden with Swedish songwriters, who, by the way, are some of the best in the world. Sweden, Britain, America are the three countries which are net exporters of music due to the songwriter talent. Very interesting fact. But people like Avicii back in 2012 were bringing the chorus to the front of his songs to get you in from the get-go. And those songs were short because that's the best way to monetize them. Drake, his last album, I think, had 27 songs. Some lasted 46 seconds long. Can we see what's happening here? Now, this initially causes a a knee-jerk reaction of, oh, my goodness, what's technology doing to art? But I want to repeat, we've been here before. If you look at the traditional jukebox model in the late 1950s, you know, traditionally controlled by the mafia in America, they demanded songs lasted two minutes, 30 seconds, so they could maximize the revenue from the jukebox. Not that dissimilar to the model we have today. There's no duration-based, you know, compensation, so shorter songs earn more cash overall. So it's very interesting. Maybe one last point there, which always reminds me, you know, given my age, about what's happened to music It's one of my favorite songs from the band U2 is Where the Streets Have No Name. A song that, you know, makes everybody feel like they're at home with somebody else. It removes the loneliness in our hearts and souls. A real intimate song. But it takes two minutes and eight seconds before you hear Bono's voice. You find me one millennial out there today who would wait two minutes, eight seconds for the vocals to drop on their favorite pop song on TikTok just doesn't happen anymore. It's fascinating to think about some of the anthems from yesteryear, how long and how spaced out they were versus the way that the hits today are so cramped up and compact in their, in their song length. Okay, I have to ask you about sleep. <laughs> so this is a um, I, five-minute album 
of silence, and yet tell me how it generated earnings on Spotify of over eighteen thousand dollars. Well, I, I look at the division of the royalties on a streaming model, and no matter how you try and cut up the cake, there'll always be ways of using and abusing that system. And when I mention cake, maybe it's worth taking a step back and think about the concept of fair division.、It、goes back to the Late 1930s, 1940s, where a group of Polish mathematicians used to meet at a cafe, which for me was ironically called the Scottish Cafe in the heart of Poland, and invent the concept of fair division. Now, very quickly, what's that? If we have a cake and Will and Linda have to divide it, a great rule for fair division is to give me the knife and you the right to choose. That way, when I cut that cake, I want to make it as even as possible because I don't control the choice that I'm going to end up with. Enter a third party into this mix, and we'll have preference and envy and other considerations to deal with. But fair division has been with us a long time. It's largely forgot about in economics. I don't think many people pick it as a subject to study anymore. But I think what Spotify does is it brings that subject to life. I've got a fixed pool of cash, all the money that streaming services generated during a time period, all these artists and songwriters that need to get paid. How should I divide the cake? Now, what the band、uh, Wolfpack did. Was to kind of abuse a system to kind of illustrate some of its shortcomings. So they said, "What we're going to do is we're going to have an album of silence that you can fall asleep on, complete silent music, each song lasting 31 seconds long. And if you just stream our album on rotation, it will earn revenues while you're asleep. So it's a sleepify playlist essentially. And that was their way of illustrating that you know, whilst the Spotify model has conquered piracy, it still has some shortcomings in terms of how it distributes the money." Uh, which is an interesting way of thinking about fair division. Now, bringing that right up to date, this debate does not go away.、Uh, by the way, that band, their actual music, not their sleeping music, but their actual music rocks. I love that band's music. Really funky, really great band.、Um, far better than stuff that's silent has to be said. But if you look at what's happening today, we have a very active debate in music, which is how should we cut up this cake? Should it be the case that? All the money that a streaming service generates in a country for a particular time period is aggregated and distributed in what we call a prorata distribution. Simply says, if Linda gets one percent of all the streams in that country for that period, she gets one percent of all the cash. Or should it be ring fence so that just Linda's money goes to just Linda's music? Something that we call user centric. That's a debate that's happening in music, but you know. In every example I bring in the book, what really resonates with me is music matters because it got there first. We're dealing with that distribution question right now. Other forms of media will be dealing with that distribution model in the future. Here's one quick example: Audible. You know, at the moment when you sign up to Audible, you get a credit space. So I sign up for a monthly fee, and I might want to buy one book a month, maybe two, maybe three. They model that package around a unit cost per book. If they move to an all-you-can-eat model. And how should you allocate the revenues generated to the authors being consumed by time spent reading? Would that be fair? Would that make you write a longer book than necessary? How would you gain the system? So you can quickly see why music matters. It's because it got there first. I was actually thinking about that album. When do you know a track has ended when a track has started? But, but that is、um, absolutely so interesting. The other thing I learned from your book is, two hundred fifty milliseconds is what a human brain perceives as instant. All these really fascinating lessons from music. Let's get to the main event: Spotify. So you write about how Spotify beat piracy at its own game. So tell me about. How it did it? 
So the vision that Daniel Ek had back in 2006-7, and it's a vision I shared when I met him, was that fighting this war against piracy through litigation was making it worse. The only thing that was happening was more people learned about piracy sites. You know, here's a great example. There was an anti-piracy campaign that was shown in cinemas. So hold on a second. You're telling a bunch of willing cinema-going paying public that there's this thing called piracy where they can get movies for free and it's bad. What do you think they're going to do tomorrow? <laughs> That's the wrong audience you're targeting with your ad campaign. So long story short, we were shooting ourselves in the foot at every turn. And then the Spotify story came along in terms of how it could beat piracy at its own game. Now, there's various ways you can explore why this happened. But the one that you alluded to there is just how fast that play button works when you press play. It works really fast. You pick the most obscure track in your musical repertoire it will be there and it'll be ready to play as soon as your thumb presses a piece of glass. It feels instant. And the backstory to that was back in the early days of building the original client, which has to be said, a lot of people who built the piracy sites that were famous from Sweden, such as the Pirate Bay, Utorrent, Kazaar, were involved in building Spotify. Poachers, gamekeepers, beating piracy at its own game, hire the best pirates to do so. But they were asked, they were challenged with build a faster play button. Yeah, okay, make it feel like music is instant. And that way we'll beat piracy because music isn't instant on piracy sites. So we can make it feel instant on Spotify. We'll offer a superior you know, offering and people will be willing to pay for it. This one engineer took the challenge on. He was convinced we had to reduce the delay time on play to 250 milliseconds. And the question was posed, why? I mean, you sat in a cave for three months eating cold pizza and drinking flat Coca-Cola, coding, 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 and then building this amazing play button. But why this obsession with 250 milliseconds? Why had it got to be down to 250 milliseconds? To paraphrase it, he had just gone to the University of Stockholm Psychology Department and asked some professor, what in the human brain is instant? You know, what's the point where we can't see delay? And the professor says, well, that's easy. It's 250 milliseconds. We all know that's the point to which the brain cannot see delay, like pressing a light switch and the light comes on. You cannot see the delay. Great. So he was determined to deliver the play button that you press today that would move that fast to make music feel like it was already on your phone. A great example of how engineers think, which is the complete opposite of how economists think, you know, it's, it's why I really, why I really appreciate engineers. I think the music industry is actually just a fantastic example of, um, you know, holding onto this old vine. And as you say, kind of, they did it for a damaging decade and then grabbed onto a new vine so tell me the story of radiohead how they grabbed a new vine and they released their album for free with a voluntary pay-as-you-want model and they ended up even capping the amount that fans could pay at 99 quid yeah so the radiohead story is so relevant to what's happening today i'll just touch on this briefly but when we think about kickstarter patreon distrokid Substack, so many outlets that you're seeing today have have to lean to the history of what Radiohead achieved in 2007. So very briefly, we're talking here about one of England's most famous rock bands, who I think formed in 1985, that far back. So predating the CD, perhaps there. So incredible in terms of just how long that band had been together, how much disruption that band had seen, how many formats that band had seen. Um, the song Creep, I think, was written in the late 80s. And you've just seen a new pop star, MXM Tomb, who's going to be the next Ariana Grande, cover it today. So this band, their repertoire is relevant. 
But in 2007, they were out of their record deal. They were free to choose their next direction. They could have clung onto the old vine, this dying record label called EMI, or reached out to the new vine and did something new. And that's exactly what they did. They decided to go it alone, leave their record label, release the album independently, but not just release it, they put it on a voluntary tip jar model. So 10 songs were on this album called In Rainbows. And you could acquire all 10 as a bundle, as an album bundle, unlike iTunes at the time. You could acquire all 10 on a voluntary tip jar model. And if you wanted to pay zero, you would still get an album. Legal free as opposed to illegal free. Let's see if this experiment could work. If you want to pay more than zero, you're welcome to, but to your point, People were offering hundreds, thousands at the time for the album. And then the management said that that's wrong. We should put a ceiling on the price. They kept it at £99 as the maximum you could spend on this project as well. So fascinating story in terms of a voluntary tip jar model. What I do in that chapter and what I try and hold the reader's hand and take them through is the five formats which happened. It wasn't just about the voluntary tip jar, which was a two-month experiment. What happened after going for legal free as opposed to illegal free was you had a deluxe offering of a £45 CD box set with vinyl, lyrics, cover art, etc. So you go from bargain bin to luxury. Then they come out with a CD, the conventional middle-of-the-road model. That was number one in 20-odd countries around the world. Then you had the iTunes album release, which also got to the top of the charts. And then on top of that, you had piracy on a scale that nobody would have perceived. You had five ways of getting 10 songs. Each one of them was popular. That was the big takeaway about what Radiohead achieved. Not just that, but they learned so much from each release. They learned so much more than it had been released conventionally as a CD in the store for $7.99 at the time. So it's a huge educational gain. And you know, the benefits of their journey to the band were perhaps best highlighted by their manager, Brian Message. They were playing to 20,000 in San Francisco before In Rainbows. They were playing to 60,000 in San Francisco after In Rainbows. Their fan base grew as well. But for the rest of us, it just raises a really fascinating make or buy question in terms of when can you go it alone and when do you reach this level of scale where you need to cede control to an intermediary? And we're seeing it happen today. If I can just share one quick stat with you, Linda. Um, last year, major record labels released 1.2 million songs to streaming platforms. That's a lot of music. That's a lot of music. DIY artists, artists that do it themselves using DistroKid or TuneCore, released 9.5 million. That's a ratio of eight to one of artists releasing things themselves as opposed to having a record label release it for them. It's a revolution in the business, and you're seeing it happen everywhere. Again, I'm going to repeat myself. Music matters because it got there first. This DIY model is now penetrating many different parts of life as well. You've actually just hit on some of your principles. Um, you've got eight of them in the book. Um, obviously, they need to be properly explored in the book. They include, you just mentioned, make or buy, drawing a crowd, which you also illustrated with Radiohead, paying attention, um, you know, five different ways of getting your 10 songs out there, reach over revenue. That's also what it exemplifies. But the one on pivotal thinking, I mean, because obviously this, I think, was might have been the alternative title to your book, Pivot. <laughs> Why? So we're now going to move into a different industry to illustrate this, which is exactly your point, that there are lessons. Why are luxury watches selling when we all know the time from our smartphones? So tell me how this exemplifies pivotal thinking, which is different than rational thinking. Yeah, so I, I, a big inspiration for me is the, the, the ad man Rory Sutherland when he talks, I listen 
like I lean in and listen to everything he says. It's, uh, he once had this expression, which is the opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea. The opposite of, you know, we all have the, 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 we all have the time on our smartphones, yet we still buy luxury watches, you know, wearing mine right now. So why do we do that? Why, why is it, turn to music for a second, why is it that we pay for the thrill of a bargain of streaming? It's been $9.99 since 2002. Rhapsody in 2002 got licensed as a streaming service for $9.99, purely because it matched the cost of Blockbuster. If it costs £10 a month to rent movies from Blockbuster, that's what will cost to rent music. 19 years on, it's still that bargain price of £10 a month for a streaming platform. Yet we also pay up to £20-£25 for a gatefold vinyl record to accompany the music we're streaming. It doesn't make sense. Well, maybe it does. Maybe it does. I mean, I would love to know of all the people buying vinyl records today. And remember, vinyl revenues now have overtaken cassettes, CDs, and downloads in 2021. So the three formats which followed it, vinyl has now surpassed each of those. I'd love to know how many people who buy vinyl records don't have a record player. I mean, just to show the absurdity of the current situation, or even take it further, how many people who bought vinyl records haven't actually opened or played the record that they paid all that money for? But there is something there, and I think this is something where you can see a much broader application of consumerism in 2021, which is this thrill of a bargain, thrill of a luxury, but a complete disregard for what's in the middle. If I look at other industries, um, take a look at the airline industry, pre-pandemic has to be stressed, and I'm pretty convinced this will continue post-pandemic. Bargain low-cost carriers, such as EasyJet, were really doing great. You can see the expansion of Luton Airport to accommodate that demand for type of travel. Equally, the high-end carriers, such as Singapore Airlines and Emirates, were expanding their business. But if you were Cathay Pacific or British Airways stuck in the middle, you were in deep trouble. And there are big clouds over the future of Cathay Pacific just now. So it's very interesting to look around society and see how people want the thrill of a bargain. They want the thrill of a luxury. They just don't want what's left in the middle. Maybe one last one. I'm pretty convinced those who shop at Aldi, a low-cost German supermarket, are the same people who shop at Waitrose. They're just picking different stuff. But they love the bargain of a, you know, Aldi. They love the luxury of Waitrose. But they're not going to go back to Tesco's. And again, you can see Tesco's have got a lot of headwinds to deal with as well. So it's, again, music matters because it got there first. But I think what we're seeing in music, we can apply to other parts of life as, too, as well. And you apply it to Adobe um, to underscore the network effects that characterize digital platforms with zero marginal costs. Obviously, a lot of this tech disruption, Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, companies are in that space. So tell me how Adobe gained revenue when Adobe Reader is free. Yeah, so the origins of Adobe was they charged what's essentially both sides of a two-sided market. If you wanted to read with the Adobe software, you had to pay for it. If you wanted to create with the Adobe software, you also had to pay more for it. So there were two sides of the market, readers and creators, and they priced both of them. Then an economist came into the company, flipped their business model, and essentially said, give it away Adobe Reader for free. How often have we been sent that line saying, download Adobe Reader for free here, click. Give it away for free. And because everybody's reading with it, more people will pay more money to create with it. And a business went from, from being worth a few million to a few billion in a matter of months. And there was that network effect. Because everybody was reading with it, everybody wanted to write with it. And the premium was on the writing side, the creating side. And I think I pay for Adobe Pro myself. And I think it's currently working out two times the cost of a Spotify subscription to create with Adobe in order so people who read my content can access it for free. 
So it's a very interesting model. Wasn't the first. I mean, one example that's not in the book, which maybe we should touch on here, and um, we saw Boris Johnson sort of shaking hands with the CEO of the Royal Mail today, you know, thanking the Postal Service for their efforts during the pandemic. Let's remind ourselves who Roland Hill was, the economist who looked at the Royal Mail Service in the 1850s. And so it had a receiver pays models. You went to the Royal Mail Postal Office and paid to receive your mail. He said, this is absurd. Flip it. Charge the sender, not the receiver. And as soon as the Royal Mail adopted sender pays, that's when the network exploded. So again, we've been here before. We can learn a lot from these examples in the past as to where we're going in the future. So, Will, you mentioned their NFTs, uh, non-fungible tokens. Tell me, what is your take on this uh, fad or a trend? The world's gone mad. That's take number one. Take number two relates to the first chapter of my book, which is remember what happened to music during digital disruption. It lost its scarcity. An MP3 file has no scarcity. This lost its excludability. Anybody could access it, and there was no security guard in the shop to force you to pay. So what's been happening in the 20 years since is we're desperately trying to rediscover excludability and scarcity again. But when I look at the NFT craze, I do think we've been here before, and we're going to go back, way back, before my time, to 1975, where the rock band Kiss came up with a really novel idea. Now, for those who don't remember the band Kiss, there's four members in the band. They were dressed up in this amazing makeup, this black and white face paint, and often looked like you know scary characters. One of them did look like a hamster, but the rest were quite scary. And Gene Simmons was the leader of the band, known for his very long tongue, but also for his money-making techniques. He actually wanted to trademark the dollar symbol. He even invented Kiss toilet paper. I mean, I don't know how appealing that is for you, but he ran a competition for their rabid fan base in 1975, which said, for five lucky winners, you're going to get a photograph of the band Kiss, get this bit, with the makeup off. For the first time in the band's history, you'd be able to see what they actually looked like. This is scarcity, only five people win. This is excludability. You can't steal that photograph. So we have a scarce and excludable photograph. Now, follow me. So those five lucky winners would be sent this envelope with this photograph inside. And it'd be all the buzz, like these five people can finally see what Paul Stanley actually looks like. When they opened the envelope and pulled a photograph off, as soon as it was exposed to natural light, the photograph disappeared after five seconds. I just think that's genius, genius, genius marketing in 1975. Now, I look at what Gene Simmons did then, not Kiss Toilet Paper, but this photograph competition. I look at what's happening with NFTs right now, and not much has changed. We're desperately trying to invent scarcity in order to capture value. Coming back to music and Spotify, ease of entry into digital businesses, that's another characteristic of a number of these uh, disrupted industries. Spotify was worried about being crushed by Apple Music. So tell me how Spotify created a moat, and this is a term I'm beginning to hear more and more, around using big data to deliver Discover Weekly. It was developed in just six months and without marketing support. And I know in the book you write about how did it succeed when many other playlist initiatives failed? So this is a great story. So tell me about this moat and uh, the surprise uh, that came with it. You see it up well, Linda, you see it up well. It's, it's, I mean, you're right to highlight that at that time in the summer of 2015, Apple iTunes was being let go, that old vine, and Apple Music was being reached out towards. So Apple, this largest corporation in the world at the time, 
uh, was letting go of its old vine and adopting the new vine that Spotify had reached out to, let's just work it out, six, seven, eight years prior. So it was a very competitive environment. And, you know, what ammunition did Spotify have against this beast called Apple that was coming into our headlights? And then Matthew Ogle joined the company in January 2015, you know, getting his feet under the desk in the space of six months, shipped a product onto our platform called Discover Weekly. Discover Weekly essentially says for Linda's taste, for no one else but Linda's taste, this is not a broadcast model of one-to-many. This is one-to-one, a narrow cast model, we could call it. For Linda's precise taste, here's 30 songs to start your week. And we're going to call it Discover Weekly. So on a Monday, you would wake up in the morning, you'd have that playlist to go to to discover new songs curated just for your taste. Now, backdrop, Spotify had talked to talk about curation at scale, but we never really walked a walk. And when this thing took off, like, wow, jaw-dropping syndrome kicks in. Now we really are curating at scale. 40 million people within the first year had had, you know, 40 million unique playlists prepared just for their taste. This is, this is new media. This is genuine paradigm shift. And for the next year, two years that followed, there was this one question that was, you know, haunting us, which is, why is it so goddamn successful? We've thrown everything at a wall. None of the bits stuck. But this one thing that Matthew Ogle cooked up called Discover Weekly not just stuck, it transformed media. Record labels are saying to us, Discover Weekly is great, and how do I influence it? And I would say, the reason why it's great is because you can't. This is an algorithm. It's looking at people's similar taste to Linda to see what their reactions are and to match those positive reactions with Linda's perfect playlist. That's how the algorithm works. It's not based on your taste. So based on the taste of people around you. So you can't influence it like you would influence the front of a record shop on the high street. Those days are gone. So, you know, we had this haunting question of why is this goddamn playlist proved so successful? And we had all this data, time of day, platform of consumption, skips, saves, shares, you know, people sharing their unique taste with others. That was an interesting thing to follow. But none of that was giving us the answer. So I decided to do what a lot of economists are doing now, which is to give up on classical economics or big data and look for something different, which is behavioral economics or psychology, which took me all the way to the University of Chicago and to the now Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thaler. And I got to work with him and his students of his MBA course at the Booth School of Business in Chicago, who were fantastic. We started looking for answers. Now, here's the problem. A, you've just scored gold. You get to work with your idol, Richard Thaler. But B, I had no answers. We've been working with the students for six, seven months, and I had nothing to show for my efforts. We've been exploring, you know, are people aware that it's a perishable good? You've only got seven days to get your 30 songs. Then we're going to take it away from you and replenish it with a new 30 songs. That's scarcity, kind of similar to NFT scarcity today if we look at nifty debates. Didn't get an answer there. So had to go into the office of Richard Thaler with my, with, my, with my pockets empty and lost for words, nothing to show for my efforts. And then he asked me some counterfactual questions. He said to me, so you tried some playlist called Throwback Thursdays and that didn't work. Yeah, well, you put a lot of effort into that playlist and that never really stuck. And you tried a Feel Good Friday playlist and that failed. Failure is harsh. You wouldn't say that to our curation team, but didn't take off. But you're telling me that you tried to discover weekly on a Monday and you got 40 million people getting 40 million unique playlists. I said, yes. He said, do you know why? I said, no, that's why I've come to Freezing Cold Chicago to find out. He said, well, it's obvious. He has this smile on his face, which reminds you that I'm the student, he's a professor, and he pulls off this academic paper from the shelf. He said, you need to read this. It's called Fresh Start, a paper by a team of academics which looked at the role of Monday and being appreciative of 
new things. Why the start of the week, start of a month, start of a new year. New Year's resolution, great example, is when you'll be willing to accept a new thing. As soon as he said this, the role of the Fresh Start Initiative, why the start of a week will make you try things that you wouldn't have tried otherwise. The first thing I thought about was coming back to Kentish Town Tube Station on the Northern Line here in London and noticing that it's Mondays where people with bright jackets are outside promoting yoga membership, new magazines, new gym pricing policy, et cetera, et cetera. You don't see those people Tuesday, Wednesday through to Sunday, but they're there on Mondays because that's when you're your brain, your mindset is willing to adopt new ideas. And that is the reason why Discover Weekly achieved what it achieved. It had nothing to do with the data science and everything to do with common sense. It's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> you think the answer. Answer. <laughs> you might have data built and none of them had the answer. The answer was staring from the face. It's the day of the week. Nobody explored that. People can like literally drink too much of the Kool-Aid when it comes to big data. And what I'm trying to do, I guess, in the book and particularly in that chapter, just swing the pendulum back a bit to say there is still a role for common sense here. And, you know, what Richard said made perfect common sense. Had I thought about why is it Mondays people promote gym membership? They've done that for decades. That's not revolutionary. That's not new tech thinking. That's been going on. It might be the reason why people on Mondays respond to Discover Weekly. You finish the book uh, with two types of people, builders and farmers. How, tell me how they can guide us in pivoting and navigating through disruption. So I came up with that term builders and farmers to capture what I felt was happening at Spotify around the time of the IPO or the direct listing to be precise. And it happens to any tech company that goes public, which is from the crazy days of designing a plane while it's in flight, you know, raising capital, um, flying by by the seat of your pants, you know, just trying to make magic out of nothing um, to being a stable public company with predictable results and compliance with financial regulations and diligence applied, et cetera. Th- that transition, I said the builders were leaving and the farmers were coming in. And it just made me think about two types of people that you would find, not necessarily in technology, but just in life. You know, the builders scale what the farmers, the builders build what the farmers can and the farmers scale what the builders can. There's one is an entrepreneurial mindset, one is an operational mindset. Maybe I saw it best with the career development frameworks that were introduced after going public. The people who worked at Spotify before going public, there was no career development framework. You just worked to get this business to a scale where it could go public. Now it's there. You have to have a kind of a long view about where it's going next. And the more I learned about tech, the more I learned about why these characteristics really mattered. Um, I want to give a big hat tip to Adam Grant, whose TED lecture, Givers, Takers and Makers, really influenced my thinking here. Because he gave a kind of taxonomy to see yourself, to look at yourself in the mirror and see, that's who I am. How does this TED lecture apply to me? So what I want to do is say, let's explain what a builder is and what a farmer is, so you can see how this book applies to you. And revisit these eight principles to show how make or buy will mean a different thing to a builder who's more inclined to make as opposed to buy than it would do to a farmer who's more used to the incumbent model of having intermediaries and needs to rethink how those intermediaries are going to add value in the future. So it's a really great way to you know, help the reader identify themselves, but also something I'm passionate about is to avoid the clickbait temptation of so many business books which say, here's one rule that will change all of your lives. I just think that's garbage. There is no one rule and we're all different. So why come out with that title? Here's two 
characteristics, let's revisit my work to see which one you are so you can get the most value from the book. That was my approach. A final question to you, Will, which is, you talked about a number of industries uh, that could be facing their Napster moment. Which industries have you spotted which that Napster moment might be a bit closer than for others? I think I mentioned those three career paths that used to top the graduate league tables back in the millennium, accountants, bankers, lawyers. I think they're all seeing the rising tide of disruption gather around their feet at pace. There's apps on our phone which can do the job that an accountant couldn't do at less cost. You know, blockchain is driving a tank division through the fee structures that banks impose on their customers. And digital lawyers are becoming a reality with AI contracts and you know, tech companies without legal departments. So we're seeing it happen there. We're seeing it happen everywhere. I think a really pertinent example that your listeners will relate to is journalism. Very relevant to Intelligence Squared. If you think about the journalistic profession, 10 years of digital disruption in the music industry, journalists were laughing at us. You guys are dinosaurs. You're dead. You're dying. You're suing the consumer. The next 10 years, they spent inviting me to come to their management offsites to work out how they can get out of a similar mess. And they're still in that mess. Um, you know, calling it newspapers, you know, not papers, they're pieces of glass now. We need to change the language. So I think the journalistic profession could be the, you know, the next most prominent party to be disrupted by their Napster moment. And two examples that I'm noticing now are The Athletic, which is like a collective model of sports journalists, which is scaling here in the UK. So you pay a monthly fee to get all the sports journalism you could possibly want, very similar to the Spotify model. You know, it might have been a Telegraph journalist, it might have been a Guardian journalist, doesn't matter. They're all under this collective roof, very similar to that artist could have been on Sony, that artist could have been on Universal, doesn't matter, they're all under a Spotify roof. So what you want is access to the best sports journalism, not pay a fee to some of the best. And then Axios, which is really more prominent in America, is doing some great stuff in terms of a different journalistic model there too. They're both opting for a model which involves collective action, or acting in the common good of the collective as opposed to the self-interest of the single newspaper title. And it's just really interesting to tie that topic up with attention. So perhaps the Times sees itself in competition with the Telegraph or the Guardian sees itself in competition with the Independent. Wrong way to think about it. You're all in competition with attention. And if somebody else wins, that means you lose. And that could be Google News, quite likely. That could be Apple News, which is now part of their $30 a month bundle. So how does the newspaper profession adaptive disruption is going to involve dealing with attention, but also questioning, do I stand alone as a newspaper title and try and fight this? Or do I form a collective like the Athletic or Axios and fight it you know, in a collective basis as well? I think that's going to be a really interesting one to play out. And you're already seeing some winners and losers as titles start disappearing from our newspaper apps. Thank you so much, Will. Um, we could go on, but um, I think we are out of time. Absolutely. Fascinating discussion. Uh, Will Page, do check out his book, Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. It's a great read about learning about the success of Spotify and how to apply that to your own business and thinking to manage through disruption. So thanks very much again to Will Page and thank you all for tuning in. I'm Linda Yu and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business. <laughs>